Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Yes, it really is a daily show. We even do it on Saturdays in the summer. It's Saturday, July 1st. Happy July, everyone. Um, a few months ago, did a great show uh, with Sonali uh, Kolhatka. Uh, she's quite a personality. She's a writer and editor at Yes Magazine. Many of you know her from her uh, Rising Up podcast and work. She came on the show to talk about uh, bullshit healthcare. We all know that the American healthcare system, to put it politely, is bullshit. Um, and why, at least in her mind, Americans want a uh, a government-run health system. Um, Sonali's uh, rising up show and her work uh, as, as she describes herself, uh, a well-rounded troublemaker is very well known. Uh, I like her work a great deal uh, as a podcaster, as a writer, and a general troublemaker. And I'm thrilled that um, Sonali has a new book out, appropriately enough, called Rising Up, uh, The Power of narrative in pursuing racial justice. It's published by my friends at City Lights, the great bookstore in San Francisco. And Sonali is joining us from Pasadena. Sonali, congratulations on the new book. You were just telling me before we went live that you are up in the Bay Area uh, launching the book in Berkeley uh, this week. Uh, you're, um, you're establishing yourself as, as, as one of California's leading Progressive activists, is that uh, an exaggeration? Uh, well, I, I would love to be one of the leading, but I really do think of myself as a journalist more than an activist. You know, I have, uh, I have activist friends and activism is, it's hardcore. You know, I don't stay up late at night making signs and uh, pitching uh, and, you know, uh, lobbying my government officials. I don't do the organizing work that one usually associates with activism. I do think of myself as first and foremost, a journalism who's uh, a journalist whose job it is to uplift the work of activists and to have a very clear bias towards social justice. And, you know, this is something that our corporate media colleagues like to pride themselves on this notion of objectivity. None of us are objective. None of us are neutral. We all bring our internalized biases to the table. I wear mine on my sleeve, which is that I am cr critically interested in social justice and uplifting human rights and, you know, basically being on the side of the downtrodden and critiquing elites. So, yeah, I, I you know, leading journalist, I would be really thrilled if I could live up to that someday. Well, let's call you a story, a leading storyteller then. Um, the power of narrative, you touched on it just before Sonali. There's an ongoing debate. We've dealt with it endlessly on this show. I've dealt with it in some of my work as well. The idea of objectivity for journalism. Um, this has been under assault in some, I think, positive and negative ways. Do you believe that storytellers, uh, journalists like yourself, can they be objective? Or is this a word that we should just discard, objectivity? Is it just a, a legacy of, of scientism of some sort or other? Yeah, I mean, you know, my background is in science. And that's one thing that I really brought to 
my journalist, journalistic work. Science Scientists and science, you know, are all about understanding how the physical world works. Journalism is about understanding how our society works. With science, you try really hard to be objective. And what you do is you take account of any underlying assumptions that you might have. And in journalism, we need to do the same thing. All our internal biases are factors, are variables that impact how we approach storytelling. And so for me, narrative isn't just storytelling, it's intentional storytelling. That's how I define it. We all tell stories, those of us who are in narrative building industries, we tell stories with intentions, whether they are at the front of our mind or the back of our mind. Um, and if we aren't aware of our intentions, we should be asking ourselves, what is the, what will the impact of the story be that I'm trying to tell? And so I think that that's really critical. And when it comes to issues of race, racism and racial justice, we have seen so much internalized racism in our narrative industries because this country was built on white supremacy. And my goal with this book was trying to figure out how do we overturn that? How do we shift our culture by um, telling intentional stories that are based on racial justice and start changing our culture so that we really, you know, um, make policies that are based on racial justice inevitable. You know, you can look at the affirmative action decision at the Supreme Court just recently, and you can see how that becomes possible in a country that is never fully reconciled with its white supremacist origins. And the backlash to policies that are promoting racial justice is very, very swift. But, um, you know, we need to do more work on making clear why we need affirmative action policies in the first place. And of course, the Supreme Court didn't strike down affirmative action policies for uh, wealthy white people because they left in place legacy admissions and donor admissions. And yeah. so, so, so in terms of the, the power of narrative, it's interesting. Um, the, the book is a nonfiction book. Um, earlier this week, uh, we did a show with a, a French writer, Clémence um, Michelot, who has a new novel out. She's also, like you, a journalist. She works for the London Independent. And she talked as a writer about in fiction, you have to, you force yourself as a writer to be somehow more factual, more believable than a nonfiction writer. Were you ever tempted in terms of writing a book about the power of narrative in pursuing racial justice in America, um, Sonali, to, uh, to write a novel rather than a nonfiction book? <laughs> Uh, that is another form of narrative work. Um, you know, maybe someday I would love to write a novel, but people who write novels every day engage in narrative work. And yes, um, you know, that you can you can change attitudes through uh, narrative work in fiction, but those are like you have to be a pretty well established novelist. As a first time novelist, how much impact will I have? You know, who's going to want to read a book by someone who's never written a novel before? Well, if it's any good, I, I, I mean, <laughs> I mean there's me. always a market for first time novelists. So let's let's get into the book. What what are you saying? We've done many shows actually, one way or the other, on the power of narrative in pursuing racial justice. What's what is the, the core argument in your book? So I critique mass um, media industries. You know, I pick a few of them because you can't, it's not a comprehensive book. And my favorite ones that I feel 
shape society in a mass way um, and have been for a very long time in very powerful ways are our corporate media and, you know, sort of media companies that have a big um, reach and Hollywood and, you know, and the creations, uh, the, the creators of pop culture. I also, to a smaller extent, take on social media as a platform for narrative building and then look at things like how education and educational courses and also person to person conversations can do narrative building work. Um, and so initially, you know, the first chapter is about the corporate media and how we've seen the rise of right wing ultra conservative media that then, of course, have given rise to Fox News fueling like, you know, really fueling us toward fascism and upholding white supremacist beliefs. And then on the other hand, you have the liberal media, the so-called liberal media that that Fox News loves to rail against not doing enough to push back against the right-wing media and so becoming part of the problem and being part of the problem. So can you give me some examples of the, because it goes without saying that you're no great friend of Fox and you know, I, I, nor am I, but what is it about, and I'm using your term here, liberal media or liberal big media yeah. that um, you think is troubling that you critique in Rising Up? Yeah, and I, and I use liberal media because that's how right the right-wing uh, media refer to them. But but what my favorite term is the the mainstream corporate media. And so I'll give you a great example. The, the For me, one of the most important examples was that when Donald Trump came out as a candidate for the presidency in 2015, he gave a speech laying out in so many ways why he was running on a white supremacist platform and he, you know, all but said, elect me, I will be a racist in chief. And the, the New York Times, the Washington Post, NPR, all of them were, you know, using euphemisms to describe how, you know, how, how extreme he was. And then the Washington Post did this like detailed factual breakdown and analysis, fact checking of are, Mexi are most Mexicans rapists when they come across the border? Because, you know, that was what Trump yeah. said, validating and legitimizing this ludicrous claim that he made. Now, of course, OK, if you want to do fact checking, that's I'm never against fact checking. But they failed to label his words racist. And it took them till, you know, the middle of his tenure when he made some tweet about one member of the congressional squad saying that, you know, she should go back to where she came from for the corporate media to finally label him a racist. And they did so again with great deliberation. Oh, he's using these tropes that people have used about people of color to the go back to where you came from. Uh, we've had our, an internal meeting and we've decided, and we're so proud of ourselves, we're gonna now start uh, labeling the things that Donald Trump says that are like this as racist. And it was like, you know, if, for, for, for people like me in independent media, um, it was kind of really gr disgusting to see the ways in which these media outlets were congratulating themselves for taking so long to call a, the most dangerous president that we've had a racist, right? And so that's why I say they are part of the problem. And they've had to be pushed every step of the way. In 2020, suddenly it was okay to say Black Lives Matter. But in 2014, it wasn't. When that slogan first came out, they didn't, you know, when they when they referred to it, it was sort of like, well, let's see what people are saying and why they're saying this. And Do you have uh, <laughs> models in the book of, shall we say, healthy or unhealthy corporate media? You've been critical of the Post and the Times. 
What about CNN, the television networks and the publishing companies? Are they doing as good or a bad a job as the newspapers in your view? Yes, they're doing as bad a job, sadly. Now, look, every media outlet is formed of individuals and there are some amazing individual journalists in all these media outlets. Some of them are my colleagues. It's the people at the top who are making the editorial decisions and shaping the coverage. So even CNN, you know, your CBS, right? Les Moonves, the former CEO of CBS, when Trump uh, ran for office, just celebrated about how much money Trump was making them and how fun it was to have this racist guy spew his racism. So I, I don't really see, you know, any one of them as being necessarily much better than the other. I do say that in 2020, after the racial justice, the mass uprisings, which had their own narrative effect, right? More Americans than at any time in history came out onto the streets and said, we are not going to tolerate racist police brutality and all of the things that go along with that anymore. And so the ma mainstream media kind of towed the line. And many of them did actually interrogate their past coverage. The LA Times apologized. National Geographic went back and looked at decades of overtly racist coverage. National Geographic didn't actually apologize, but they said they would try to do better. The Kansas City Star News had a great apology. Um, they interrogated very deeply their coverage and they set goalposts for the future and promised to do better. And they were very detailed about it. But that's the kind of thing that they, they had to own up to. How yeah, I, I, I'm not always a big defender of certainly of mainstream media and of the publishing industry. But from my perch, Sonali, and correct me if I'm wrong, it seems as if what you describe as a, a, a culture war over a narrative is um, is for better or worse being fought. And the publishing industry, you know, every day I do in a different kind of conversation with someone telling this story. I uh, did one last week with Christian Cooper, the, the guy from uh, Central Park, who was, uh, of course, involved in an enormous uh, racial racist scandal with a white woman, one with Arcade Russell, bla black athlete on being black and bisexual. All these are new books, uh, all in the last few days, one with Garrett Nyman on uprooting the old boys club, the old white man's club in America. So would it be fair to say that the, the publishing industry, I mean, you're being published this new book, Rising Up by City Lights, which is certainly not mainstream publishing. But is corporate publishing doing a, an okay job or are you as critical of, of them as, as newspapers and television? Well, you know, I haven't dug into it uh, for the book, but absolutely. If we if it was easy for, say, somebody with my background, my name, my skin tone uh, to write a novel and have it picked up by a publishing house, we would live in a different country because the stories we'd be reading and being told are very, very different. If I walk into a bookstore, you know, I'll see first time novels by white authors with white sounding names that may be good, may be mediocre, may be lovely, may, may be not very challenging because they're, you know, upholding the current status. Who, who likes lovely books, in your <laughs> words, by white authors? No one reads those. Anymore. I don't know. That's, no, that's I Jane Austen. That's 200 years ago right I I, I, know, I haven't really I haven't you know it's been a long time since I read 
a mainstream book. Um, but I'll tell you, like, you know, for example, I'm reading a really cool sci-fi book right now by a South Asian author named Meru. M-E-R-U is the name of the book. S.B. Divya is the name of the author. And I bought this book at Octavia's Bookshelf, a local bookstore in Pasadena that just opened uh, a year, uh, less than a year ago. And Octavia refers to Octavia a Butler, the incredible black sci-fi writer who was from Pasadena. And so this book curates, specializes in curating black and brown authors in, in writing genres like sci-fi. And that's where I go to find, you know, the, the fiction books that I want to read because I'm tired of not being able to relate to the central protagonists of the mainstream publishing industry. I don't see myself in them. And well, that's interesting. We did a show uh, earlier this week with uh, Aisha Harris, um, a uh, young uh, cultural critic. She has a new book out, a collection of essays, Wannabe Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shapes Me. She's a young African-American woman, works for NPR. So it seems as if things have changed. Let's, let's talk a little bit about storytelling. We've done a lot of shows on it, particularly in terms of the environment, one with the Harvard linguist Martin Puchner, another with Gene um, uh, Hampf Korolitz, one of America's leading novelists, on telling good stories. Uh, even about telling stories uh, by artists with Aviva Ramani, uh, and then with the, the writers Kerry Arsenault and Bathsheba Demuth on telling the environmental story. How do we tell the story of, quote unquote, and I'm borrowing your term here, Sonali, racial justice or the history of race in America without it becoming just orthodoxy, without it becoming yes. itself propagandistic? So, you know, I, I dig deep into Hollywood, which is fictional, you know, which does fictional storytelling in my book. And so there are similar conundrums there. And I think that they apply to the written fictional word. Look, we don't need stories that are one sided where, you know, I'm not looking for a story where there is where, where the people of color are all the pure good guys. Uh, and 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 the white folks are all the, the the really evil villains. Nobody wants to watch a story like that because it doesn't reflect reality. However, I have spent a near lifetime watching movies where people of color are routinely cast as the one-dimensional evil villains who are props for the white protagonists. What I want to see and what now new filmmakers of color and TV showrunners of color are starting to do is make nuanced three-dimensional portraits of people of color in the same way that we've been seeing stories being told about white people. People who are complex, who may sometimes do stupid things, but who are redeemable, who operate in shades of gray. So I interviewed Ryan Coogler, who we know is very famous for Black Panther. He's now a household name. Before right. he was a household name, he did Fruitvale Station, a beautiful, moving, fictional retelling of Oscar Grant's last day before he was killed by Barton. Excellent movie, of course, based Amazing in the East Bay, where you just were to launch your book. Yes, and so he he um, he didn't shy away from the fact that Oscar Grant had a, a, a past that involved prison time. He 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 showed that he showed Oscar Grant struggling with that, uh, worried about losing access to his uh, daughter. He has a he had a daughter, and he was worried about violating parole. He showed Oscar Grant as a three-dimensional human being. The newspapers wrote him off as a former felon or whatever. And 
um, Ryan Coogler humanized Oscar Grant and made the case without overtly saying so, made the case nobody deserves to be executed in cold blood extrajudicially um, the way that Grant did. So that's the kind of stories we need to hear about. I mean, I even love what Shonda Rhimes does. Um, you know, she doesn't overtly weave politics or racial justice in her uh, pictures and her in, her in her TV shows. She puts people of color in care in places and in roles where we don't expect to see them, you know, Regency era London, British royalty and nobility. Um, I love Jane Austen, but I never pictured that I could be someone like me could be in that world. And Shonda Rhimes says, it's fiction. So what? Let's do it. Who's going to stop me? And it has been so popular, right? That's the kind of storytelling we need. Do you think we need more storytelling that attacks the very idea of, of race? We did a show uh, a few weeks ago with another journalist, John Blake, who just written a memoir, understanding his own background, his own white mother, who he didn't know about, didn't even know he had a white mother until he dug into it. There's so much, and I and, and excuse the term, I, I can't think of a better one, mixed race in this country. <laughs> uh, whites and blacks have been having sex ever since the beginning of time and not always acknowledged. Yeah. The, the very idea of race and of these racial groups needs to be addressed in the power of narrative. Well, white supremacy is a mythical construct. Absolutely. My children are mixed race. My husband is white. And white. the reason why uh, people of color cling to their culture, the reason why immigrants like me cling to my immigrant culture is because it is a bulwark in a, in a white supremacist world. When you live in a world where you are seen as the other, where you feel like you're under attack, you hold on to the things that make you unique and beautiful and powerful. Uh, and that's where you know race, racial con constructs have come in because white supremacy is um, upheld as something powerful and a superpower of white folks, right? Not uh, the Irish were not always white. Italians were not always white. Uh, Light-skinned Jewish Americans were not always white. And they've, you know, and, and, and these days we're seeing white Latinos being absorbed into whiteness to uphold the mantle of white supremacy and simultaneously give up their background and their culture. Uh, not all of them are doing it, of course. But so, yes, the reason why uh, we have this notion of race in this country is because of white supremacy. It was created in order to justify enslavement, in order to justify Native American genocide. And we need to do away with it by dismantling white supremacy. It will, you know, people will be intermarrying. If you show a white supremacist, you know, like a, like a crazy fascist, a picture of a light-skinned Latino and don't tell them their name and say, well, this person qualify as a as a somebody that you think is, is better than, than a brown-skinned person, they would probably say, yes, I have relatives in India who have very white skin and green eyes and light hair. And then I have other relatives who are a very, very dark skinned with curly hair. And we're all Indian, right? And so um, this notion of who's white and who's not white is something that has been artificially created by white supremacist culture. We need to do away with it, but we can't do away with it by saying we're all colorblind. We have to call out white supremacy. You can't be colorblind in a white supremacist country because white supremacists aren't colorblind. They're very color conscious. It's interesting, uh, Sonali, you use the term liberal media to critique media. And yet, the more I listen to you, you sound 
like a classic liberal, someone who rejects the notion of racial identity, of making generalizations about people because the color of their skin or their gender or their religion. And of course, even when it comes to the African-American community, there are divisions within them between perhaps more traditional liberals and leftists. We did a show uh, with Santi Elijah uh, Holly uh, a few weeks ago on the Shakurs, on the tradition of radicalism, of anti-liberalism, I guess, within the African-American community from the Black Panthers to Tupac. Do you think of yourself as a liberal? Is there a, a liberal I, narrative yeah. here or how would you define yeah. your politics? The classic liberalism is uh, definitely more progressive than we want it to be. Um, it, the right wing media has redefined and the right wing culture has redefined what liberal is. Um, you know, I think of myself as somebody who is a staunch abolitionist, for example. And when I say abolitionist, I talk about uh, we can live in a world without policing. And does that make me a liberal? I'm not sure because I don't think many liberals would agree with me, right? Um, I don't think that the U.S. military is a legitimate institution. I don't think that um, U.S. empire is something that we should be defending. Um, I don't believe that borders should keep people from, you know, from, from crossing one country to another. I don't know whether that makes me a liberal. I know that what I uphold is values of human rights and justice. And however that gets defined, um, you know, you can it's, it's easy to put people in boxes. But I think what what really must be the things that unite us is who do we value? Do we value markets over humans or humans over markets? Do we value borders over humans or humans over borders? Do we value badges over humans or humans over badges? Right. So, so I every single time I will pick humans. <laughs> You talked about superpower. That, of course, reminds me of Hollywood superpower movies. They even have a, a multiracial or a black uh, vision of uh, a sort of utopian future, a Wakandian future. What, what societies have existed that America should try to become like? And don't say Denmark. Or yes. is America itself building a new narrative, one that other countries and communities can emulate in the 21st century. Where, what would you like to see in America as the power of narrative in pursuing racial justice um, becomes more and more central to its culture? So this is such an important question, right? Because we have to stop and think about the big stories that are told about this country or any country that one lives in. Uh, the big story, for example, of the right is the idea that, you know, white settlers came and discovered a new country, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, made this country into what it was. And now all these brown people are coming across the border to take what's ours. Black people are asking for special treatment. And we have to, um, you know, we, we have to make sure we're not getting outnumbered. We have to cling to what is ours. That's the big story of the right. What is our story? And I think that's something that America has to figure out and the rest of us have to figure out what is our story? What is the story of a multiracial democracy? What is the story we get when this country lives up to its ideals of democracy and equality? What is the story? How do we define and describe a story where government works for us, where our tax dollars are used towards all of the things that we need to keep us safe? Healthcare, education, high quality education, uh, job training, um, high taxes on corporations and the wealthiest people. What is our story? And, and, and in our story, how bright is our future? If our story 
story is one where our children have a future because we've you know, brought the climate crisis under control. It's a beautiful story that everyone will want to join in. If our story is one where nobody goes bankrupt because they've had cancer or their loved one has had cancer. So, so defining what that story is of collectivism, of using our resources to benefit all of us and keep us all safe, of seeing each other as having each other's backs and saying that your pain is my pain, my joy is your joy. That is the story that we need to settle on, find, start articulating, start putting out in our pop culture, in our mass media, and convincing all Americans that we all benefit. That's the story that I think we need to start building. Um, you know, how we define it, those details, that's up to us. And we're still in a transitional phase, right? Because Hollywood is just being infiltrated by black and brown creators. So are news media. And we have a long ways to go. And so I don't want to claim to know that story, but I know the, the vague outlines of what I would like to see in that story. And I hope that others will join me in telling that beautiful story of, of what we want our future to be and how we then go about making it a reality. You mentioned Trump, of course, and DeSantis, who have a very different kind of story. One of them will probably represent the Republican Party. It's, a, it's certainly not a beautiful story, although it seems in some ways quite a popular one. Uh, meanwhile, the current president is not particularly popular. Uh, Joe Biden, uh, actually, we're showing on the screen how unpopular really is Joe Biden. His approval ratings are very low, and Trump now is ahead of Biden. Are you concerned in terms of the telling of what you call the, the beautiful American story that the Democrats in 2024 are not going to be in the position to tell this story because they're going to be running a man in his yeah. 80s who sometimes appears as if, as if he's even older than 80. Yeah, uh, you know, Trump's story and the story of the right is a story based on fear. It's a fear-based story. And it's easy to, like, whip people up using fear. Um, and then, unfortunately, the Democrats are using fear of that fear as their story. Their story is the fear of Trump instead of, Here's all the beautiful things that we could have if we elected Democrats. The Democrats are afraid of their own platform. They are afraid to get behind their own platform, you know, that, that they don't live up to their own stated ideals. Um, and Biden needs to do so much better. You know, uh, he has a, a, there is a growing cohort of young progressive con Congress people of color that is pushing him. And unfortunately, there's not enough of them to set the Democratic Party's agenda. But that's the kind of vision that we need to see articulated. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had the amazing opportunity to sit down with Congressman Jamal Bowman of New York in this uh, conference in Atlanta about reparations for black people. And Jamal Bowman is so art uh, so clear about how the Democrats need to rise to the occasion and, um, you know, embrace the idea of reparations for black people, embrace the idea of educational equity, embrace the idea of banning guns so that our children have a future. And he's not sadly the center uh, in his words are sadly not enough to push Democrats because he's, there's not enough of them, of him. There's not enough of people like him in Congress. Um, so yeah, Biden needs to be pushed and pushed hard. And yes, I'm absolutely concerned about 2024. We just barely staved off a second run of Trump once before. And it's going to be really difficult if we don't get our ducks in a row uh, again. And and yeah, it's it's 
it is going to be a very, very tenuous next few years, um, which as a journalist, you and I both know, um, you know, we, we, have, we have to find ways to cover it without being part of the problem too, right? Do we want to see a third party candidate who might take away votes from Biden to, 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 to help Trump get into power? Are there any good viable third party candidates anyway? This is all up in the air and I am not looking forward to it, Andrew. 